Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, conversations with creative people, and I love talking with musicians from all genre, and today we have a great guest. His name is Rick Wills. He's got a reputation as one of rock and roll's best bass guitarists, hands down. Starting out in Cambridge, England, he worked with Dave Gilmore, Peter Frampton, Roxy Music, and many other groups before finally in 1979 hooking up with one of the biggest selling groups of all time, Foreigner. With multiple platinum albums and, and a huge number of hit singles, Rick Wills has been there and done it all. Recently, he rejoined the band on tour in the summer, and I chatted with him about the business and about the love and passion he still has for music. So enjoy my conversation with rock and roll bass guitar legend Rick Wills. With the first question, how much fun are you really having these days, Rick? Let's go on, Mike. Fantastic. All the guys in the band, Kelly Hansen, as a front man, is a wonderful front man and great singer. I swear if I close my eyes, I'd swear it's Lou Graham. But it's just the vibe. It's so good. It's so up. It's so energetic. And I think people are really going to have a great time. I love going out with the guys, and they're so respectful to us, shall we say, elderly guys, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who join them on stage and have a great time. And... Uh, it's all fun. It's really good fun, but I've missed it for the last 15 months. I've done two shows this year so far with the guys in the Tampa area in Clearwater, and it was just the best vibe because everybody was so happy to be back together because we're like brothers. You know, we really are. We yeah, take yeah. this whole thing seriously. We want to do it as best we can because, you know, to be honest, we're really, really happy that after 40 years of our music or more, we're still able to do it. And, you know, that doesn't mean all of us are able to do it, but the ones that want to, do. And I'm one of them. And Al Greenwood is another. I think it's impressive for anybody in any job to be still doing it several decades later and having the passion and love for it. Where does it all begin for Rick Wills, master guitarist? Uh, tell um, me about your early upbringing. I moved to Cambridge in the United, you know, UK in, 1960, when I was about 12 years old, and I'd already fallen in love with music by then. There was the band, The Shadows, that backed Cliff Richard, and I just loved their music. And I just had this dream that one day I might just get up on that stage and do that as well. And I did. I got to see The Shadows play in our local theater at the Regal Cinema in Cambridge. And they just blew me away because, man, they were so good. I mean, they really were. They were the top. And I got to know people who were also interested in being in a band, such like David Gilmore, uh, Willie Wilson, friends of mine who we became closer and closer. And we all wanted the same thing, to, to one day, you know, make it, And I guess. And we did. We, we moved out of Cambridge. We moved to London. And then from London, I went abroad with David because he was being scouted as a potential star, which they weren't wrong there. I mean, we all knew how good Dave was. And it just built from there. You know, it just there was never a moment in my life that I doubted what I would do. In term, I just loved it. In terms of the musicianship, though, did you know it was the guitar all along because you're so adept at it? Or did you try other instruments as well? Well, I started out on guitar, and that was mainly because the house we lived in in Cambridge was a college house. My mother and father looked after the house. But we had nine students who would live in our house while they were, as they call it, down at college. 
And we, with mum, would look after them and, you know, change their sheets and bed and do all that stuff. Dad would look after the garden and all that kind of stuff. And one of the guys in the first year that we were there, his name was Alan Herbert, I remember him clearly. He had a big Hofner President guitar, which I was very impressed with because I, I couldn't afford anything like that. And he showed me the basic chords, C, G, D, D7, and E, A, D. And from there, I just couldn't stop. You know, I just had to keep going. And I played rhythm guitar for quite a long time, actually, in the local bands I was in. I, had a, I finally got to get a Fender Stratocaster, which was a big, big deal for me. Oh, yeah. In those days, you know, 100 guineas was a lot of money. That's, that's 100 pounds and 100 shillings. And I was just doing that and learning and learning and learning, getting better and better. And then one day I just thought, I really want to be the bass player in the band. Because <laughs> things were changing. There were three-piece groups coming out, like mm. Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and bands like that. They were terrific. And they didn't have a rhythm guitarist. So I thought, well, I want to, ta I want to take up the bass. But this was when I was about 15, going on 16. And I was still kind of small for my age. I was about five, six, five, maybe five, 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 six. And the Fender bass, you know, was a big, this long neck. Yeah. <laughs> and I always struggled on that at first. But suddenly, when I got to 16, I suddenly started to grow. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm nearly six feet. So uh, it was like, yeah, I guess it was just meant to be. My life was just directed by the way I love music. I love being around musicians and the people who are involved with it because they're such fun. They really are. Oh, they're a bunch of lunatics, most of them. I think. You know, it's so true, so true, Rick. You do something that you love and you meet the right people at the right time. That's the kismet of the universe. And I want to ask you about Peter Frampton because in the biographies of Rick Wills, he figures prominently. How did yeah. you how did you meet up with Peter? And this is in a period of time I assume before he went ballistic. Is that right? Yes, it was. Yeah. What happened was I, I had joined a band in Cambridge called Little Women of All Names, <laughs> but they had a fantastic young drummer called Jerry Shirley. He was sixteen years old, and I saw him in a club. And the guitarist was named Tim Rennick, and he was terrific, too. And I was in a pretty successful soul band at the time. In fact, we were very successful. But I left that band to get, to get together with these guys because I wanted to do what they were doing. They were kind of doing more Hendrixy stuff and just a little bit. They were stretching it out there, you know? Mm -hmm. and Jerry was such an inspiring drummer. I was two years older than him at the time. But he was just brilliant. And how it all came together was... He knew Steve Marriott in, from the Small Faces very well from the early days from where he used to live in Essex. And I think what happened was that Peter went to Steve and said, I want to form a new band. I don't want to be in the herd. I don't want to be a pop star anymore. I don't want to be this kid who's on the front of every magazine, who's the face of 68, whatever. And Steve said, listen, I know a drummer called Jerry, who you really got to go and check out. That's what he did. He came to Cambridge, checked out Jerry, chose him and said, I want to start a band with you. And then they've got Greg Ridley from Spooky Tooth to come into the band. And Steve was so sort of at a point in his life where the small faces have really gone full circle. They just made a fantastic album called Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. And it was brilliant. It really was. But Steve wasn't happy. He really wasn't. He wanted more than that. He wanted to be out of a pop band. He wanted to be in a real rock band. 
if he could join that band, well, you can imagine. I mean, Steve Marriott was a huge star in England. So was Peter. So suddenly there was a supergroup kind of vibe, you know. The mm. papers picked up on it. All the music papers started saying, this is a supergroup. You know, and boy, they really were. So I used to go to the studio when they were recording because I knew Jerry well. And he introduced me to the guys. I got to know Peter. I got to know Steve and Greg. And I, I learned a lot from going to their studio sessions at Olympic Studios in London. So much so that I thought, well, I've got to just, I've got to make it one day. I really have. And about a year and a half later, Peter came to me and said, look, I'm going to leave Humble Pie because, you know, Steve is so overwhelmingly upfront and he's really the star of the show. He said, I want to do that myself with my own band. Will you join me? So I did some sessions with him for his first solo album, Wind of Change. That worked out great. And that was with a, a drummer called Kelly, uh, Mike Kelly from Spooky Tooth, and a keyboard player called Mick Gallagher. And we formed Frampton's Camel. Mm. And the very first song we ever wrote together was Do You Feel Like We Do? Mm. And that's how it all started. It started from there. We recorded an album together. We came to New York. We worked with a guy called Eddie Kramer, great producer engineer who worked with Zeppelin, loads of people. And we started working. He was with the same management that Humble Pie had, the Anthony. And, you know, it just took off from there. I, I was finally, my dream had come true. I was in America. Before we go further, I think it's important to note, uh, and I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I'm in the music business later on when I get into radio, but a lot of us in the States really didn't have any idea beyond the Beatles and the Stones what the heck was going on in merry old England. Uh, the scene in England was was truly revolutionary in terms of rock music in that era, wasn't it, Rick? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Beatles really kind of set it off. In 63, when they came out with Love Me Do, these guys have been working in Hamburg and doing clubs and just working their butts off basically every night. And they were good. I mean, they were really good. But they also were very original because it was unheard of for the bands themselves to write their own material. It was always written by, you know, songwriters. Yeah, outside covers, of covers, yeah. Right, right. But they came along and they had their own songs. That just changed everything. Suddenly, out, out of nowhere, all these bands started to appear like the Small Faces, the Hollies, the Who. Bands that were really, really, really good. So the competition was hot, and it was incredibly important to the way we all suddenly realized that if we were going to make it, we had to be very good. You've been amazingly, well, talented, but lucky to connect with people like Frampton, and then ultimately to connect with Mick Jones and be part of the Foreigner experience. Uh, do yeah. you pinch yourself when you look back at the, yeah, the opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I was with David Gilmore living in France. I met Mick Jones then because Mick was then, he was living in Paris. We went to Paris to, to uh, play in a club in a, an area of Paris called uh, Saint-Germain-de-Pré. And he used to come to the club and check us out. And Mick by then was already a, a, quite a big star because he was working with Johnny Halliday and his wife, Sylvie Vartan, mm. who were really big stars in France. And he would come down, and we were, you know, we weren't earning much money, maybe 50 francs a night, which is about $15 or something like that a night each. And he would you know, take us out for drinks and stuff and talk to us. And we, we just, we never forgot that, that, that first sort of meeting. So 
years later, when I came back to New York after this, the huge success of Brampton Comes Alive, Do You Feel Like We Do have been stretched out to like a 15-minute song. Oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really happened. I was in. Out. I was just but out of high school. That was huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I went to see the management again, DeAnthony, and I said, D, I think I'm owed some money, you know, from the stuff I did with Peter. He said, oh, Rick. You're owed a lot of money, brother. <laughs> it's so big at the moment. You know, he's, he's selling millions of albums at the moment. So he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a check to take down to the bank. He, he was, his office was on Park Lane, by the way, in New York. Mm-hmm. I took it down to the bank. He gave me a check of $35,000 in cash. Mm. I've never had that much money in my life, really, seriously. And I was just, I, did, I was overwhelmed in a little, in a little way, but... At the same time, I thought, I'm, I'm moving forward here, you know? That's progress. Uh, <laughs> it was a big move. I don't remember the next three days very well. <laughs> I mean, we just had such a blast. I was I was staying with Jerry Shirley. He had an apartment in New York. And we just, well, we just partied down hard. <laughs> and what happened was, I got, we found out on the sort of the grapevine that Foreigner was going to start auditioning for a new bass player because they weren't happy with what was going on. So I said, let's get in touch with Mick. And we found a number for him. And I said, look, Mick, I'm in town. Can I come and audition? Because I love what you're doing. I love the music. Mm. In fact, it was my wife who turned me on to feels like the first time. She'd heard it on the radio and said, mm. have you heard this bad foreign? And I said, no. She said, well, check it out. So I went and bought the album. And I was blown away. It feels like mm. the first time. It's a killer song. I mean, let's be honest. And the rest of the songs on the album weren't too shabby either. Oh, yeah. You know, and then Double Vision came along. I used to have an eight-track player in my car, and I must have played that thing until it wore out. <laughs> I knew the songs pretty well by then. So I went to audition, borrowed a bass off of Jerry's band's bass player, and went into SIR Studios in New York and just played Double Vision, Hot-Blooded and Cold as Ice. Dennis Elliott, the drummer who... I mean, what a drummer. Great guy. Great, lovely, funny person, too. He just got off his drum and said, I want him in the band to make. And Mick said, Dennis, we've got 70 bass players to audition. You've got to be kidding. We can't just do that. (laughs) So I had to be patient and come back a second time, do vocals, do more songs with the band. And then I waited and waited. And I called home to my wife in London. I said, how's things? She said, Rick, please come home. I, I had two kids by then, a girl, Nikki, and a boy, Daniel. And they both got chicken pox, and they were, <laughs> you know, they were pretty ill. Yeah. My wife was just climbing up the wall, going nuts. She said, I really need you to come home. I said, well, I really don't want to come home because I want this job so bad. She said, well, please. So I did. I literally flew back to London. I got a call at 8 a.m. in the morning from Mick Jones and Bob Prager saying, hey, Rick, how are you feeling? Pretty tired, pretty weird. He said, "Well, you've got the job before, and come back to New York now." I mean, it, it was life changing. Did you guys reminisce about the times you met in the '60s? Was that any? Oh, sure. it, that had to be right. Nick and I. I mean, we've <laughs> we've talked about it so many times. It's just odd how life pans out sometimes. You know. Yeah, I mean, after uh, the thing with Frampton. Yeah. I didn't know where I was going to go, and then I got a call from Nicky Hopkins, the top session piano player in London. He was with the Stone. He said, I want to make a solo album. Will you help me? I did that, and then I did a, I did a stint with Roxy Music, where I toured America and Europe with them. But again, not something I thought I would do, but 
interesting and really enjoyable. Well, you know, first, nice, yeah, nice couple of couple of observations. One, you're a good dad for doing what you did going back. <laughs> but I, I, I have a question that I've, I've always wondered. I'm not involved in any way in the music scene. So a band like Farner, which is a hit-making machine, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the stats in terms of platinum, in terms of top singles, I mean, just amazingly successful. Does does that stem from like a mission statement that Mick and his team and the hires up in the band have? In other words, uh, this is the way we're going to do it and we're going to stick to our method of operation or is it just see what comes up and go with the flow? It just happened kind of, it was organic really in a mm. way. I hate to use that word, but it was. It was just the way Lou and Mick wrote together. You know, when you listen to the words of uh, Long Long Way From Home, Right. where Lou's describing what it's like to come down to New York from Rochester, upstate New York, where he was in a small town. And he's suddenly in the midst of all these millions of people, and he doesn't know anybody. You know, He's just there because he's on a mission, and Mick wants him in the band because of his voice. And around that whole thing, you know, Dennis Elliott being the drummer, Al Greenwood on keyboards, Ian McDonald from King Crimson, you know, they were building something. They didn't know it was going to be that big, but a guy called John Kolodner, who worked at Atlantic Records, he heard it and he believed it. He said, I am going to sign this band to Atlantic, and Armour Erdogan got behind it. And they really did a great job on mm. putting the band out there, getting them on radio, getting them played, and it just, from there, it took off. So it was a wonderful start for them. Um, unbelievable in some ways. And when I got to join the band just before Head Games in 79, they were already huge. I mean, they really were. I, I suddenly realized, you know, I've just dropped myself into the most wonderful <laughs> position I could ever do. For a musician, any musician, the idea of just having a gig, a regular gig, but being with this organization, being yeah, part of the Supreme Group. Then from there, it, we just wanted to get it even bigger because Head Games, although I loved it as an album to make and to play on, we were a little disappointed by some of the sales figures. Not that it was bad, it was still very, very, very big. But the album cover itself offended some people. The fact that there was a girl sitting in a urinal in a gent's toilet. I remember. You know, writing yeah. on the wall <laughs> didn't go down too well with some people. You know, uh, just weird, I guess. Yeah, so one of the things you... We finished you, you, that whole year of touring. Yeah. We did the whole of America. We did Japan. We did, you know, a lot of work. And Mick and Lou, I guess, sat down and said, look, I want to make some changes because there were a lot of changes musically going on in the world with punk and all that stuff going on in England, which we didn't really want to be part of. But we thought maybe we should just toughen up a little bit here and go a little bit edgier and stuff. So Mick and Blue made a decision, really without discussing it with me or Dennis, that, that Al and Al Greenwood and Dennis and uh, Ian McDonald should go from the band. I mean, it was a really hard decision mm. to make because. We were all, you know, very close to one another. And it was devastating for them, but they decided that's what they wanted to do because they wanted the freedom to bring in other people who would give us another another sort of colour to our uh, setup. You know, that's how it was. That's what we did with the 4 and a 4 yeah. album. We worked with Mutt Lang. And it was hard work. It really was. And I started out, I thought, really well. We did Waiting for a Girl Like You in two takes. I thought, well, we're on a roll here. Mm. But that wasn't to be it. We had to rewrite a lot of songs. But, you know, he wanted an anthem. He got Jukebox Hero. We wanted something quirky, different. He got Urgent. 
we got songs that were just more diverse, sort of stretching ourselves. We tried a lot of different people on the album. Some of it worked, some didn't. But, you know, I mean, the solo in Urgent was, uh, uh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head now, uh, sax player. I can't think of his name. Anyway, you know, it, we just went we just went for it, but it took nearly a year to make that album, which was very expensive, and it was at times quite straining on us all because, you know, it was yeah. in and out of New York. I, mean, I lived up in Westchester, just about 35 miles north of Manhattan. So it was just in and out of the city every day, and it went on and on and on, but Nick would not give up until he got it what he wanted. You can tell his influence throughout. But what I wanted to mention as a radio guy, uh, the amazing crossover appeal of Foreigner. You could, you could have Foreigner playing on classic rock. You could have Foreigner playing on adult contemporary. I mean, yeah. in the heyday of radio in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, there was nary a format where you wouldn't hear Foreigner. I mean, it, that's I the kind of lasting power that it had and has. It was, it was pretty amazing. I mean... You know, I think really what really happened towards the end when Lou decided to make his own solo albums and stuff was because What I Know What Love Is was such a huge worldwide hit that it changed our audience somewhat. I mean, we would do shows and instead of just being young girls and guys down the front screaming and yelling, we had some elderly ladies down the front, <laughs> you know? And it was kind of weird to look at each other and go, this is different. <laughs> Well, now I got to ask you, man. You're you're a very established and experienced gentleman in your golden years, very vital and all that. What's it like being out there with young performers with you on the stage and then a mixed audience? You must be having a blast. Oh, just, I love it. I mean, I can't get enough of it, to be honest. I mean, I think I'd be out there far more than I probably should. But I just love being with the guys because a they're excellent musicians, all of them, and they really take great care playing the music that we made back then to the nth degree right. I mean, they really do. And the energy they put into it is scary. It's just, it means the moment they hit the stage and the lights go up, boom, it's, it's, it's an exciting show. And when you look out at the audiences uh, that you're involved with now, you're probably seeing people in, in my age category, you know, middle age, even yeah. older as well as younger. It's kind of nice to know that the music that Foreigner and that you have been doing for decades is sort of uh, universal, has lasting impact. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly, you know, it's just, it's so, we're so grateful for the fact that we've lasted that long, that we care about what we do a lot. And that's why with this COVID situation, we hope that the fans that come to see us understand and respect the fact that what we're doing is a little dangerous, really, because we don't yeah. want to get sick. We've all been vaccinated. We've all been checked. I mean, I, I have the COVID test regularly. The band get tested twice a week regularly, every, all the crew. We have to do this in order to keep going because we don't want to get sent home again. We really don't. No, and I've talked to numerous musicians in our local area and beyond, and uh, I, my heart breaks for so many who struggled and, you know, just missed doing what they love to do. And now that it's yeah. back somewhat, we want to support that. Well, well it's, it's just for yeah. us, it's just too weird to be home, you know, not be out on the road, especially in the summer, which we're always out on the road. Oh, God, yes. What's a summer without a rock concert, for crying out loud? Exactly. It's, you know, <laughs> I mean, the show I did up in Tampa, in Clearwater, with the band, I mean, the crowd was just unbelievable. I mean, it was like they'd never seen a rock concert before. 
<laughs> People are thirsty for it, and uh, and I know that uh, you guys are selling out everywhere as yeah. we speak to you, as we record this. Well, I want to thank you. You're such a delightful guy, and I can tell a real connoisseur of your instrument, but also a lover of uh, the whole experience of music, and that, that shines through very, very clearly, Rick. Well, Jordan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We look forward to being in the Boston area. Well, we'll be cheering you on, absolutely. And whether it's uh, a ballad or a hard rocker, you guys can do it all. Thank you so much. All right, Jordan. You take care. Have a great day. You too, Rick. Rick Wills, bass guitarist extraordinaire, one of the best in rock and roll history, still out there gigging with the legendary rock group Foreigner. And don't you just love that accent? Well, that does it for another episode. Thank you so much to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry and the gang at Chart Productions in Boston, where the podcast is produced. And of course, you guys out there, thank you. Wherever you may be, in over 95 countries, every state of the union, I appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Find out more about me, the show, my book, On Air, my 50-year love affair with radio, all of that at jordanrich.com. Till next time, this is he saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.